I am speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Ian Hanamansing. Welcome to Checkup's Ask Me Anything podcast. And today you're about to hear our AMA on the Israel-Hamas war. This morning, the UN says refugees have broken into a warehouse in Gaza to take food and basic survival items. People are desperate, they are hungry, they have not received any food for the last couple of days. And this morning, an Israel Defense Forces spokesman said more troops are joining those already fighting inside Gaza. Our goal is a total victory over Hamas, to eliminate Hamas from the face of Earth. It appears we're inching closer to a ground invasion of Gaza by the Israeli military. This week, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said the war was entering a second phase, which would involve more ground assaults. Israel continued airstrikes on Gaza, as well as sending ground troops into the enclave on nightly incursions. The internet, power and infrastructure have all been affected in Gaza. And all of this has contributed to an unfolding humanitarian crisis. Over 8,000 Palestinians have been killed since the Hamas attack early this month. Those numbers according to Gaza's health ministry, which is controlled by Hamas. Our AMA guests are Scott Clancy, a retired major general with the Canadian Armed Forces. He also serves as the director of operations for all of NORAD. And Dalia Alakouti is the head of humanitarian affairs with Save the Children. That's a charity that supports children in crisis situations around the world and is operating in Gaza right now. They answered questions about the military and humanitarian implications of the escalating conflict. Here are a few highlights from the show. Scott and Dahlia, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for having me. Scott, let me start with you. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu held a news conference yesterday and he talked about, and I just mentioned this, the war entering a new stage and suggested what is to come. The ground offensive will be long and difficult. What stood out to you, uh, either in what he said or where the Israeli armed forces are right now? So a couple of things stood out for me, Ian. The first thing was, you know, he was speaking straight to the Israeli people. He's talking to them about this is a second war of independence. Uh, In such, you see the entire nation rallying behind the Israeli Defense Force. They might not be rallying behind him as the prime minister, but they're rallying behind the Israeli Defense Forces and the idea about defeating Hamas. So he spoke directly to that. The second thing, and it's not necessarily you know during the press conference, but immediately afterwards, you know, he was asked continuously to take responsibility for the actions of October seventh. I think he bears lots of responsibility, especially as a leader, as a senior leader within Israel, but more particularly of setting the conditions uh, that have led to this. So I think those are the two things that stood out for me in his press conference. Dahlia, internet and phone services are starting to return to parts of Gaza after the Israeli attacks uh, led to a communications blackout. Save the Children, your organization has a team operating there right now. Have you been able to get any information from them? 
We've been able to reach part of our staff. So some of our staff are accounted for, but there are still some staff that we're not able to reach uh, up to the moment. We've been getting information uh, throughout, with the exception of the communications blackout. But we have been getting information throughout from, from our teams, our colleagues in Gaza. We've also been getting it from colleague, for, from our partner organizations. We've been getting it, of course, from the same sources from the United Nations and their agencies that are working in Gaza. The situation is horrific. It is a catastrophe. We've been warning for weeks about an impending catastrophe. The catastrophe is here. I know your focus is on the people who live in Gaza and this catastrophe as you describe it, but I do want to ask you about your workers who are there. I mean, they're doing, you know, necessary work. It's what they sign up to do, but at the same time, uh, they're in a dangerous place. How does your organization balance the dangers with the importance of being there? It's really difficult. It's about the organization's ability to balance it, but it's also about the individual's ability to balance it and our staff's ability, really. Um, The staff that we're talking about like everyone else in Gaza, are displaced. They're in need. They're sleeping. They've they've talked to us about spending nights sleeping on the streets. Some of them are in designated shelters that were meant to host 200 people and are hosting over 20,000. Uh, so there's there's definitely a very difficult balance, but there's also an imperative, a humanitarian imperative to help people however they're able to. And that's certainly the place that our staff are coming from. That's certainly the place that our partners are coming from. And a lot of civilians in Gaza today are doing that. Scott, Israel has been launching some sort of uh, nightly ground attack into Gaza. That is a new stage in this uh, offensive. And, and, you know, throughout we've heard uh, Israel saying that there is going to be a major ground uh, incursion. Um, so given your expertise in military affairs, describe for us what you think is going on in terms of military strategy. It's a great question, Ian, because we don't have a lot of information as to exactly what's going on. I, the first thing is I don't think it's going to unfold like we would think a normal ground attack, let's say, in the Iraq war. This isn't going to be the shock and awe armored forces rushing forward. And, you know, a few days later, we see them occupying the entire territory. I don't think that's going to be like that as well. So the main question would be, I have the Israeli forces that launched, you know, yesterday night that have remained inside of Gaza, is this just the first stage of a slow and deliberate assault that's going to go through the north and and then, you know, further on? I I think that it it quite possibly could be so that instead of having this, you know, large offensive with large armored forces that you're just going to see this slowly develop where the Israeli defense forces go block by block. Uh, So that has yet to be seen. The intensification of the artillery strikes and the fact that Israeli ground forces have left their staging areas and and have not gone back tends to lead me to believe that that is the case. Dalia, thousands of people were told in Gaza this morning looted a United Nations warehouse looking for flour and basic hygiene supplies. Certainly understandable that people would do that, but it's also a troubling development uh, for a lot of people. The UN has said they, they worry that civil order, civil society is beginning to break down. And I wonder your reaction to this and also what it means for further humanitarian efforts on the ground in Gaza. I think it's really important to draw out the the basic context here. And Gaza is home to more than 2 million people. We have over a million people that have already been displaced. Over 60% of the population in Gaza were already refugees prior to this conflict, prior to this particular escalation in the conflict. 
80% of that population already depended on aid. 500 trucks a day were coming into Gaza prior to 7th of October, carrying essential commodities like fuel and also humanitarian assistance. So we're talking about hundred, approximately 100 trucks of pure humanitarian assistance that were coming into Gaza every single day prior to the 7th of October. And then we had weeks with absolutely no supplies, no fuel, no food, no water, and no medical supplies. So it's hard to say. It's, it's, it's you know, a breakdown of civil society, a breakdown of civil order. People need to eat. People need to survive. And they have been trying for weeks at this point to meet the basic needs of life. And to no avail, less than 100 trucks have been through with humanitarian aid. That's less than one day of assistance prior to 7th of October. This amounts to collective punishment. So the fact that they would go in search of food, in search of assistance, certainly that's very concerning that they would break into, you know, break into a warehouse. But how do people, how do we expect people to survive? What are we doing to make sure that assistance is going into Gaza? Because as I said, over 2 million people, 80% of whom already depended on aid to meet their basic needs for survival. And a sliver, not even a sliver of that has gone in in three weeks. So I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what to say other than to say, this is, you know, this is really quite the reality and, and it's not really surprising. Mm-hmm. And I should say to people who are listening and, and may feel that we're giving an unbalanced view of what's happening in Israel and Gaza, because we're not talking about October 7th. We're not talking about the atrocities that were committed by Hamas. But the focus of this program today is what is happening in Gaza with the beginning of of a ground incursion by the Israeli forces, the escalation, as far as we can tell, of of, of strikes from the air. And what uh, we're told is a preparation for a more significant ground operation. So if it sounds like we're only looking at part of the story in terms of the human suffering, it's because we are focusing today on what's happening in Gaza. I'm speaking to you at a moment of grave crisis. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall. It's a series about history. Not the ancient past, but history that's still hot to the touch. In this first season, I explore a revolutionary political movement that brought a modern democracy to the brink. You can find Recall, How to Start a Revolution, on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Let's go to our first caller. James Kahane is in Toronto. Hi, James. Hi there. Good afternoon, Ian. Thank you for allowing me to uh, make a couple quick comments and ask the question. Sure. So, uh, first of all, it's horrible to hear what's going on in that part of the world. Um, The IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, uh, announced, I believe it was yesterday, that uh, Hamas has below one of the largest hospitals in Gaza, Al-Shifa Hospital, their command and control, as well as hiding places for hundreds of their commandos. So, first of all, and apparently they have shared intelligence confirming that with uh, intelligence uh, personnel from various countries. Anyway, to the extent that that is true, How can uh, Israel 
defeat or, or defeat Hamas with, uh, while being humanitarian, or would that constitute war crimes? Is there any precedent for wars where, uh, where parties are, are actually hiding under civilians to make it difficult for them to be uh, That is a great question, James. And I should say to our two guests who are here for the Ask Me Anything, I I will sometimes just direct a question to to one of you. uh, But if the other wants to jump in after, by all means, uh, do that. But this does seem to be something that is uh, sort of in the area of expertise for Scott Clancy, a former Major General with the Canadian Armed Forces. Uh, Let's assume, Scott, that, I mean, that that the Israeli information that they are sharing is correct and that Hamas is using a hospital as cover for underground, uh, like literally underground operations, how, to James's question, how does the Israeli army deal with that? that James, this is a great question. Uh, you know, my, my sister works for the Canadian Red Cross. So as a military guy, you could expect that we have had these exact conversations in the past. There is a precedent. And in accordance with international humanitarian law and the laws of armed conflict, no party may use schools, mosques, civilian uh, entities uh, in order to protect themselves. And if they do, now technically speaking, they lose their protection under the Geneva Conventions. Now that being said, nothing, nothing would uh, allow someone to attack civilian targets, but these become then dual use targets, which means that 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 location is being used both for military and civilian purposes. In the past, Occidental countries like like Canada and the United States in coalitions, when we've seen mosques or schools being used by Taliban, Al-Qaeda, ISIS fighters, uh, we have chosen to or not to attack those targets, even though they become valid military targets uh, based upon one, you know, the, the collateral damage that uh, could occur uh, based upon our assessments for how many civilians are there. And then and there's an element of proportionality that goes along with that. And then secondly, whether or not it makes sense from a larger uh, gaining of the military objectives. And, and this is where I think the Israeli Defense Forces is, is in a different space than most other militaries in that you know, we would not necessarily strike a mosque or a school, even if it's being used to launch attacks on us, because even the mere perception of doing something like that, it's just wrong, even though that it's a legitimate target. The Israeli Defense Forces have, you know, they're, they're fused with the idea of rooting out Hamas no matter where it is. And I think that's why they presented that information. I don't think it's a precursor to an attack directly on that hospital. But I think it's showing the world exactly what Hamas is is willing to do with, uh, you know, flaunting the international laws. Yeah, and you know, one of the things, Scott, is I often think people who listen to a radio show may be gardening or driving, not paying full attention. When you describe the hospital as a uh, uh, legitimate target, I I should say, you're you're talking about the extent to which the hospital is being used by military people and they're using the hospital as a shield, right? Right. Exactly. In this case, and this is where it's going to be very difficult. And I think the Israeli Defense Forces need to be careful. They're going to be judged by this. If it's subterranean bunkers below the hospital that they're actually using, and the above ground hospital effectively shields them from that, nothing takes away the responsibility on the Israeli Defense Forces or, or any other military force to use every other military capability to try and get after that objective, as opposed to going straight at it. And again, 
this is the problem space of dealing in a large urban environment with this enemy that doesn't doesn't care about using humans as shields. Scott Clancy, former Major General with the Canadian Armed Forces. We also have with us Dahlia Alicotti, who is the Head of Humanitarian Affairs with Save the Children, and they're here to answer your questions on Ask Me Anything. Dahlia, is there anything you wanted to to add uh, by way of answer on on the hospital issue? Absolutely. I think just to stress absolutely that there is a responsibility on all parties to a conflict to ensure the protection of civilians. Absolutely, without a doubt. Those parties, it it is international humanitarian law. It is the Geneva Conventions. Um, I'll also add that we, we've heard a similar rhetoric, um, but I, I do want to stress that as we sit here today, over 3,195 children have already been killed. Over 1,000 are missing and expected to be trapped under the rubble. We're talking about fatalities in this escalation of the conflict that have exceeded 8,000 people, over 60%, I believe it's 63 or 68% at this point, are women and children. There is a huge civilian component to what is happening, and there is absolutely a need to protect that. And these, these numbers that we're talking about, these are just in Gaza. This does not reflect the scale across all the occupied Palestinian territory. All of the death here of, of civilians, of innocent people, and particularly of children, I mean, it is heartbreaking. I mean, the, the words don't do justice to it, but uh, all I can do is say uh, how heartbreaking it is. I can't even imagine those numbers. I can't even imagine th- that uh, that number of children and, and, of course, heartbreaking in terms of the victims of the October 7th attack as well. Ian, if I can add something to put sure. those numbers in perspective, yep. when we talk about over 3,100 children dead... That is more than the annual total of children that have been killed in conflict since 2019. So in three weeks, we have had more children die than the annual total of children that have been killed in conflict zones. That is more than 20 countries, or assuming 20 countries, all in three weeks. So it's, 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 more, than, it's more than heartbreaking. It's more than tragic. It requires action. It requires people to to take action it requires Canadians to call their members of parliament to say that they cannot stand for this. They cannot uh, stand for this treatment. Let me ask this question delicately. Um, but, you know, in the fog of war, it doesn't matter which side, things sometimes get uh, misunderstood or miscommunicated or even exaggerated sometimes for propaganda reasons. Are you, are you the information you have with Save the Children, you're fairly confident that those numbers are accurate? I have been in the field of humanitarian response and emergency response for over 15 years. This is the first time I've seen doubt cast on the numbers of dead. These are not just the numbers that we're seeing. These are also the numbers that the United Nations are reporting. These are the numbers. This is what we see. If you look through social media, if you look in the news, there's absolutely no doubt that the civilian deaths, that the number of children that are dying, that the impact of this war is absolutely incredible. And we hear it from our staff, we hear it from our partners. And without a doubt, what is happening today is unprecedented. We have not seen the scale. I have worked in over 10 conflict zones. I have never ever seen this. I've been in Libya, I've been in Iraq, I've been in Mosul after it was retaken. This is something I've never seen before. And the fact that they're not able to access basic needs of life, 
it's more than fog of war. We can't just say it's the fog of war. This is numbers, families, people, children, some as young as seven days old yeah. that are and, killed. And, and to, you know, uh, when I say fog of war, I just mean in terms of verifying numbers. That's all. I was asking you how confident you are that the numbers you're quoting are accurate and you are very confident of that. So I, I'm, I'm glad I had a Absolutely. chance to ask that question. We have a call from St. John's, Newfoundland, Saad Rajput. Hi, Saad. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm, I'm well. What, what's your question? Uh, <clears throat> The question that I have, I'm, I'm going to come to it in a second. I think uh, uh, I do apologize if I get a little bit emotional. Uh, I'm a new father. I'm a two-year-old, and it's uh, um, it's heartbreaking the pictures that are coming out of Gaza, um, and it's heartbreaking what happened on 7th of October because civilian deaths are uh, just not uh, something that I want to see, uh, and I'm sure most listeners would agree. I keep looking at my little girl uh, when these pictures are scrolling across uh, social media and videos of people burying uh, their loved ones, uh, especially the children, because that's what gets to me. Um, I, I also think that, uh, uh, unfortunately, because of this war, uh, the process, uh, the peace process in the Middle East is uh, is decades away. If uh, in there, Canada had a proud history of being a peacekeeper, peacekeeper and peace broker. And I think uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, and I, I, I voted for him, uh, has betrayed that responsibility by standing by as collective punishment is dished out on uh, the Palestinians, especially Palestinian children. Uh, there is a international norm called uh, R2P, Responsibility to Protect, um, which basically um, asks the international community to prevent mass atrocities, um, war crimes and things like that. I, mm-hmm. I, uh, my question is, is the Trudeau government abdicating its responsibility under R2P by not asking for a ceasefire in Gaza, um, especially because it's not just Palestinian civilians we, which, who, who we should care about just as much, but there are also Canadian civilians who have charter Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Saad, thank you very much for your question. Uh, it's an excellent question. It is a question about politics and uh, political accountability. Our, our experts are respectively uh, uh, experts in sort of humanitarian aid and military. So I'll just ask uh, our two uh, guests, do either one of you want to answer that question? I totally understand if you feel it's outside your area of expertise, or maybe you do want to answer it. Yeah, sure. I, I can take an initial stab yep. at it and then meet Dahlia, I'm sure, has a great uh, perspective on it as well. Yeah, R2P, uh, you know, this is a Canadian thing. Uh, responsibility to protect was a result of one of our ministers of foreign affairs uh, initially brought in not just uh, to protect against war crimes and things like this, but to give UN peacekeeping forces the ability and the responsibility, even from a moral perspective, to protect civilians, regardless of what the mandate of the mission was. Uh, there's a lot of this that came out of our operation inside of Bosnia, where we had one specific, or Rwanda, where we had one specific operation, and uh, you know it might have prevented us from uh, expanding our military operations, even though the UN mandate had had not have. Uh, done that. What the Trudeau government has done is been, you know, playing this fine line between uh, responsibility of the government of Israel to protect its uh, 
population. And I'll tell you, the Israeli government sees this very clearly. You know, my contacts inside the Middle East and in and around the Israeli government are, are saying this is very clear. It, a ceasefire to them means that we are turning our backs on the atrocities of October 7th. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. What I'm saying is that's how it's perceived. And to them, they must defeat Hamas. They will take care of all of the rest of the things that have to be done with the Palestinian people after Hamas is defeated. And for for them, they'll say, hey, the aid will go in, but why are not just just release all of the uh, all of the hostages, just allow the foreign nationals to leave via the Rafah gate and, and Hamas is not allowing them to do that. I think that the Trudeau government, that's the reason why they, they still see that responsibility uh, as being sovereign, uh, an important thing for the Trudeau government to support. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll provide that over to Dahlia. Yeah, thank response. you. And, and Dahlia, we have about two minutes left uh, in the program, but uh, could you weigh in, please? Yeah, I think uh, it's a really great question. I, I think if I just want to address where we're shrinking, we, you know, we are shrinking our responsibilities. We are not holding parties to the war accountable. Um, if we are genuinely concerned, we would be asking for a ceasefire. Um, and we would be asking, as individual Canadians, we would be asking our government to be um, demanding a ceasefire right now. Uh, and people can go to savethechildren.ca to learn more and to contact their MPs. Um, And we're also part of a coalition, uh, the humanitarian coalition that also has a statement around this um, and is fundraising and they can go to together.ca. But there is an absolute responsibility to protect civilians. There is a responsibility on warring parties and then within the international community as the government of Canada. I have seen so many great examples of where Canada has really stepped up on the protection of civilians, on the protection of human rights. And I do not see that now. Delhi, we have just one minute left. Uh, I'm curious, what is, given the lack of uh, flow of humanitarian aid into Gaza, what, in a minute, if you may, uh, what can Save the Children do in Gaza? What, what are you able, what are your workers able to do? We're able to do very small targeted assistance. Um, so with whatever depleted supplies are left, we're able to get them to the people that need them. We also are able, we were able to get um one truck, so 45,000 bottles of water into Gaza today. We have a second tr- truck that we're hoping to clear um, the checks in the coming days. But this is this pales in, in comparison to what's needed. Mm-hmm. So much suffering. And, uh, I, you know, I, I do appreciate both of you, uh, your analysis. And I think it's very helpful, the answers you provided on our questions. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. That was a portion of Cross Country Checkup's AMA about the Israel-Hamas war with Scott Clancy, a retired Major General with the Canadian Armed Forces, and Dahlia Alakati, the Head of Humanitarian Affairs with Save the Children. If you'd like to listen to the full two-hour edition of Cross Country Checkup, you can stream our podcast on the CBC Listen app. And if you'd like to share comments or appear on the show, go to cbc.ca slash aircheck. I'm Ian Hanamancy. Thanks for listening. The next live edition of Checkup airs on CBC Radio, CBC News Network, and CBC News Explorer next Sunday. For more CBC podcasts, go to cbc.ca/podcasts.